Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And it's a new year! Yay! Welcome to 2022. It's official. We have started a new season. Boy, is it going to be good. (laughs) And we're starting off with a really good one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You think? We're starting off with this series for you. I think our first ever, well, technically not our first ever, but this is certainly going to be a long one. Please have patience with us for this one because we're going to be confused throughout the process too. <laughs> it's a really confusing topic in history. We It's 30 years of history and yet it's incredibly confusing we've decided to block it off into five sections and hopes to make it less confusing. I, I don't know if we'll make it less confusing because I don't know about you, but even in this first episode, some of that research, I was like, I'm lost. Where am I supposed to be in here? I'm confused with this timeline. I had to literally write out parts of the timeline of, of one of my researches, one of the people's lives who I researched. I literally wrote it out because I was confused because some of the stuff they were talking about later was happened before some of the other stuff that they were talking about. And then it just came. This one small 30 year section of history of English history has so much turnover in terms of high ranking individuals. I can't keep track, but would you like to tell the audience what we'll be talking about for the next several weeks? Oh, we will be doing the history that leads up to and contains the Wars of the Roses. Why did we decide to do this again? (laughs) Random number generator on Google. We didn't decide it. That's true. That's true, but we're the ones that guiltily put it in there as a topic. Um, To give give everyone a kind of an idea of how we're going to break this down, we're going to try to, again, to make it concise but a manageable amount of information. The first section, which we'll be covering today, is going to be on the history and the key players of the Lancastrian side during up to and during the Wars of the Roses. Second episode will be on the York side. Third episode will be on the Tudor side leading up to the crowning of Henry VII. And then fourth and fifth episodes since it's 30 years total we're going to split that up into five year sections each and give a brief summation of some of the key things that happened throughout those 30 years so hopefully making it less confusing than trying to read it through a history textbook or, or something that doesn't Britannica <laughs> yeah because I use that as one of my resources but geez louise even trying to understand it probably on Wikipedia is just the. Shall we start it off? Let's get into the Lancastrian family now. Hey, woohoo. So, again, we're just going to, I'm going to talk about a very, very brief overview of the Lancastrian side of the family. And then we're going to get into some key players and then just a little bit more brief information about the Lancasters. So today is just the one family side. So the first Earl of Lancaster was actually created for Edmund Crouchback, one of the sons of Henry III in the mid-1200s. And to give an idea, Edmund's grandfather was King John. And after his death, Edmund's son, Thomas, would then become the second Earl in 1296. But unfortunately, he lost that title when he was executed in 1322. The title then went to his younger brother, Henry, after Henry had petitioned Parliament to reverse the treason charges on his brother, Thomas. When Henry of Lancaster died, the title fell to his son, Henry of Grossmont. And it was during this time that they were raised from an earldom to a dukedom. And this is done by Edward III. Henry of Grossmont, the Duke of Lancaster, had no sons, but he did have two daughters, Blanche and Maud. Blanche would actually go on to later marry John of Gaunt, who we'll also talk about 
today, who then became the next Duke of Lancaster. Upon his death, John's titles were forfeited and his son, Henry of Bolingbroke, was exiled by Richard II in 1399. Now, Henry would very soon return from exile, depose Richard, and claim the throne to become Henry IV. After his death, his eldest son, Henry, became Henry V. And after Henry V died, his son, Henry, became Henry VI. Again, all still holding titles of the Lancastrian side. And because of Henry VI's mental issues, illnesses, and at least one catatonic coma that we're aware of, his cousin Richard, the Duke of York, was made Lord Protector over Henry's son, Edward. Now, Richard and Henry would go back and forth as to who would rule whenever Henry had a sort of medical fit. And eventually, Richard, Duke of York, would die at the Battle of Wakefield in 1460 at the very early stages of the War of the Roses. Henry's son, Edward, would later die in the Tower in 1471. Now, Richard, Duke of York, his son, Edward, would be crowned Edward IV in 1461 after the death of Henry VI. And the line then at that point would change from Lancaster to York in terms of ruling family. And that really kicks off much of the War of the Roses at that point. And it wouldn't be the end of the Lancastrians, but we'll pick up that on another episode. Now, it's called the War of the Roses because you have the White Rose and the Red Rose. And the Red Rose is for Lancasters, the White Rose is for the House of York. So the Red Rose actually became associated with the House of Lancaster when it was first used as an emblem by Edmund, the first Duke of Lancaster in 1265. And he was actually, as I mentioned, one of the sons of Henry III and grandson to King John. Now the species of rose that is believed to have been used as his emblem is a specific cultivated one called Rosa Gallica. And while the later Dukes of Lancaster would use the red rose as their emblem, it never appeared on any of their flags or even on their livery, which is usually the dressings you would have on a horse and, and your, on your person and things like that, that would show off your side during battle and things like that. In fact, the period known as the War of the Roses wasn't even called that during the time it even actually happened. It's actually thought to have originated because of a scene in Shakespeare's Henry VI, when members of the houses within the play choose roses from a garden. The Lancastrian choosing a red rose in the scene and the Yorkist choosing a white rose. But with that brief history of the Lancasters out of the way, we are now going to talk about just a handful of very prominent members of the Lancastrian family leading up to the war. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Let's get into it. All right. Let's start with King Edward III. Exciting stuff. Edward was... King of England from about 1327 to 1377. He is the king that is known to have led England during the 100 Years War, which occurred between England and France. And he had seven sons and five daughters. And those descendants and the descendants of his children are the ones that are known to have started this lovely 30-year tumultuous time period. But then again, I mean, this is going on during the Hundred Years' War. Let's talk about tumultuous there. Edward III himself came to the throne via betrayal, but not his own, technically. His lovely French mother, Isabella, ended up gathering forces in order to depose her husband, Edward II, along with her lover. Now, lovely, ain't it? In the end, she won, and Edward III was placed on the throne. However, give, give a guess how old he was at this time. This is the boy king? No. No. I get confused. Uh, okay, there's That's always two eyes. Get, no, Richard II. Is, That's later. I know. I'm trying to, I, I've, I've mentioned to you before, anything after King John, but before Richard III, I get incredibly incredibly confused for those 600 years of English history. <laughs> I know that Richard II was potentially gay and 
Edward, one of the Edwards was the boy king and he inherited it when he was very small. And Henry the sixth inherited it before he was even a year. But um, I, uh, who are we talking about now? Cause I'm lost again. Edward the third, 1300s. Uh, definitely not the boy king he was not young i'll give no, you no edward the third was the the one who started the 100 years 100 war. years war correct mm-hmm. i don't know how old 13 you were close 14 sounds about right well mm-hmm. technically back then if you were 12 i think that was your majority and you were now allowed to rule without a lord protectorate or regent yes well unfortunately for edward that's not how it went um, he was 14 years old at the time of his ascension to the throne. However, it's like I said, it's not the true beginning of his reign as his mother and her lover basically ruled in his name. They used his name to sign documents and all this other stuff without him actually making any approvals or disapprovals. He was basically a background character, AKA a puppet for them. Mm, sounds like Victoria. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about that another time. In 1328, so basically a year after his reign, reign, and I put that in quotes, began, he married Philippa, who is the daughter of William, the Count of Holland. And not long after the marriage, that's when his rule truly began, as he finally actually kicked his mother and her lover out of the royal seat. The royal throne was emptied. Goodbye. <laughs> so, so what? Once is once Isabella and her lover were removed from, I guess, royal policy making. Uh, Edward the Third truly became king in his own right, and he he's actually known to have created the Order of the Garter, which is the highest order of knighthood. And England actually flourished under his reign even during the Hundred Years' War. Of course, this was, this, this flourishing was hit by, you know, bouts of bubonic plague, which arrived in times like 1348 and was around for at least a year. As we know, the bubonic plague lasted for hundreds of years. The Black Death was just in and out, in and out, in and out in different parts of, the, different parts of Europe. So it was the same during Edward's reign. So there were years when the bubonic plague really hit England and years when it it was kind of quiet. And the Hundred Years War, as I said, it was a success for England at this time. Henry, I mean, Henry, Edward, sorry, I'm getting names confused. There's so many head, Henry, Edwards, and Johns. There's only one John. Not for me. I, you'll, you'll hear how many times I say the name John. Oh, 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 okay. I thought you were referring to Kings. There's only one King John. Uh, yes. yes, yes. In terms of popular names this time, Richard, John, Edward, and Henry. Extremely popular. So I just mixed up the names. Oh, and William. Yes, William too. So Edward gained a rather massive amount of territory, uh, majorly Aquitaine. And he signed the Treaty of Calais, the, the Treaty of Calais of 1360, because there's so many treaties of Calais. There's a couple at least. Of course, as I said, the bubonic plague once again decided to reappear. And as we go down the line through his reign, the, the Treaty of Calais of 1360 was actually challenged at a point. And it was challenged by the French king Charles V. And this time when war broke out, once again, Hundred Years War, Edward III decided not to take or participate in the front lines of action. He actually left the battle to two of his children. One was his heir, Prince Edward, and the other was his fourth son, John of Gaunt. However, This time the war did not actually go in the favor of England and leaned towards the French. And in 1372, Edward actually decided that he would step in and actually join the front lines. However, that also didn't work out for him as winds actually never allowed 
him and his troops to make landfall in France to join the battle. Three years later in 1375, another truce was made. And these are the lands that Ed King Edward III of England was able to keep in his possession. And those included Calais, Bordeaux, Bayonne, and Brest. So it's not as much as he was able to keep as much as he took in the first round of battles, but it was a lot more than we can talk about later. Queen Philippa did die in 1369, which again was also not in Edward's favor because he basically became contingent to his mistress of the time, who was Alice Pereres. He followed whatever she said. And she supported his son, John of Gaunt, for a period of time, far more than she supported the heir to the throne, Prince Edward, especially in politics like parliament. And during the time known as the good parliament of 1376, John of Gaunt was not was not on good terms with everyone within the parliament. And they majorly favored, obviously, the heir to the throne, Prince Edward. However, Prince Edward died on June 8, 1376. And power, once again, took a 180 and returned to John of Gaunt. At the time of his death in 1377, Edward III had basically lost any power he ever truly had. Isn't that fun to know? You lose all your power because you don't. I, I wonder what made him lose all of that power. Like, why did why did it change? And why did he become a slave in a way that in quotes, he's not really a slave to Alice Pereres? Women's wiles, I guess. Yeah, I mean, depending on how long he was previously married, maybe he was just lonely and, and mourning and uh, just... You know, some people, when they're really attached to somebody and that person unfortunately dies, they just aren't always the same again. Yeah, that's a, and he that's lost his son, too. So. His heir. Later on, yes. Yes, Edward died later on. That's why we never knew him as Edward IV because <laughs> he never became King Edward IV. He died as Prince Edward. Little tidbit of information there. But... It's important to note now the fourth son, John of Gaunt. Obviously, as I said, he was the fourth son of King Edward III and Philippa, and he was born in March 1340. So he ended up marrying a woman named Blanche in 1362, which gained him the dukedom or duchy, 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 I don't know how to pronounce that. Duchy, thank you. Duchy of Lancaster. It's not like David Duchovny, it's Duchy. Okay, I'll go with it. As I was saying, where was I? Okay, making him the Duke of Lancaster, and he gained a ton of land and estates with that. With Blanche, John had seven children. Only three of them survived, but he had seven with her. He had first Philippa of Lancaster, born in 1360, died in 1415. Next came a son named John, who died not long after birth. Elizabeth of Lancaster, who lived from 1364 to 1426. Edward, born and died in the same year of 1365. Another son named John, who also died the same year he was born. And then we have Henry of Bolingbroke, the only male child between John and Philippa to, to survive infancy, was born in 1367. Now remember the name Henry of Bolingbroke, it's really important. And the last child that Philippa bore was a girl named Isabella, who again died at a young age. So the only children to survive were Philippa of Lancaster, Elizabeth of Lancaster, and Henry of Bolingbroke. Only three children between the, in this marriage that John had to survive. In 1368, Philippa of Lancaster contracted the bubonic plague, unfortunately, and John was not home at the time and she died. Just so you know, forgot about this little tidbit. John was born in Ghent, Belgium, which is where the Gaunt comes from. He just butchered Ghent to Gaunt. <laughs> the addition to his name, John of Ghent, I mean Gaunt, word above, John of Gaunt, the addition to his name went 
out of use after the age of three until the play Richard the Second by who, Melissa? Who was Richard the Second by? Oh, the play Shakespeare. Exactly. Of course. Brought the name John of Gaunt back. Mm-hmm. They called him John of Gaunt in the play. As I described under Edward III's life, John fought for his father during the Hundred Years' War, and he actually held the position of commander in the army. After the death of his father, who, who became king after the death of Edward III, is interesting because Prince Edward did leave a male heir himself, and he became known as Richard II. So Prince Edward, Edward's son, Richard the Richard became king, and that is John of Gaunt's nephew. During Richard II's reign, he did maintain his position in the government, and he acted as a mediator between the party that supported Richard II and the party that was backed by John's younger brother, Thomas Woodstock. Again, Thomas Woodstock is an uncle of Richard II. <laughs> John being a go-between between the two lasted for about five years between 1381 to 1386. Fun times. After the death of, Con- uh, after the death of Constance, yeah. After the death of Philippa, John remarried Constance of Castile, who is the daughter, an illegitimate daughter actually, of King Pedro I of Castile in 1371. Through this marriage, John believed that he actually held a claim to the kingdom of Castile, and he attempted to actually claim the throne, which did not work in John's favor, and he eventually gave up his claim. However, he didn't give up this claim without a backup plan, because, you know, didn't they always have backup plans, Melissa? Always. John decided to make a political marriage between his daughter Catherine and the man who would become the King of Castile, Henry III. So many thirds right now. Catherine was the firstborn child between Constance and John. So she's the half-sibling of Henry of Bolingbroke and Elizabeth and Philippa of Lancaster, half-sister. She was born in 1372. John and Constance did have another son named, what, what was the child's name? Come on, Melissa, you know it. John? Yeah. Unfortunately, he died a year after his birth. It would seem that the name John for the children of John is not a very lucky one. In 1394, Constance of Castile passed away and John then married the woman who was his mistress, Catherine Swinford. John died in 1399 and King Richard II actually confiscated the lands that were under John's protection. So all the Lancastrian lands actually went back to the crown which meant that none of them were passed to John's son, living son, Henry of Bolingbroke. And not long after the confiscation of these lands, Henry of Bolingbroke would actually depose King Richard II and take the throne, becoming King Henry IV. Which leads us to you, Melissa. I'm gonna talk about Henry, yay! So the future, King Henry IV was born on April 3rd, my birthday, of 1367 at Bolingbroke Castle in Lincolnshire, hence the name Henry of Bolingbroke. At that time, there really were no last names. You you were usually of something unless you had, like with John, King John, he was called Lackland because at the time he was born, he was the last son and had no land to give him. So, you know, sometimes you had those sort of last names. Or you were, your last name was Smith because you were a Smith. Now, he was the grandson of Edward III, who we just talked about, and his father was John of Gaunt. And his mother was the heiress of the Lancastrian dukes, uh, Blanche of Lancaster. Now, Henry's childhood was a pretty good one. And he was actually childhood friends with the future Richard II as well, which will certainly come into play later, both good and bad. And they were both even admitted together in the Order of the Garter in 1377. Now in 1387, Henry participated in a rebellion against Richard, which would become known as the Lords of Helland, 
And this was because Richard showed very much favoritism towards a particular Robert de Vere, also the Earl of Oxford. And it wasn't the first time, because this is Richard II, who is potentially gay. And he also had other fav male favorites of the court, such as Piers Gaveston. So it made Richard not very popular with people all over the land. Richard also made Robert de Vere the Duke of Ireland as well, which made the barons incredibly dissatisfied. They formed an army to stop de Vere from gaining further ground with Richard, and de Vere would be defeated at the Battle of Radcot Bridge. Richard would go on to punish almost everyone who rebelled against him. However, because of their closeness throughout their childhood and their, their lives, Henry was actually spared both from execution and exile. In fact, Richard actually promoted Henry of Bolingbroke from an Earl, from Earl of Derby to Duke of Hereford. Hereford, Hereford, yeah. Now, however close they were at this point, it wouldn't last long. Another 10 years passed and Henry was in trouble yet again. This time for fighting against another relative of his, Thomas de Mowbray, the first Duke of Norfolk. Now it's believed that this was actually engineered by Richard in order to expel both men from the country. Richard exiled Henry from England for a period of 10 years and Mowbray was ex exiled for life. Now, interesting, this decision wasn't solely just for Richard's choice. He also sought the approval from John of Gaunt as well to exile John's son. Now, the following February, while in exile, Henry's father died in February of 1399. Strangely, however, Richard still had close ties with Henry, but decided that Henry would not immediately inherit his father's lands, but instead must ask Richard directly for the lands, which was sort of a ploy on Richard's part anyway. But not long after, while Richard was away on campaign, Henry and the exiled Thomas Arundel, previously and to become again, the Archbishop of Canterbury, both took up arms and returned to England. With Arundel as his advisor, Henry Bolingbroke went around the country, took lands and castles from those who plotted against him. And eventually he would gain so much support for his cause in taking the kingship from Richard and regaining his family lands. And this again was in part because Richard was just not, he was unpopular with barons, he wasn't popular with the people. The barons thought that he should take in part in fighting against the French during the Hundred Years' War. Richard wasn't really interested in fighting. In addition, because of his preferred court companions, Richard also never had an heir. He had an heir apparent, but he never had an actual biological heir. Henry, prior to becoming king, had four sons. So he was a much more viable king. He also fought. He was very militarily strategic. He was a good leader. People liked Henry a lot better than Richard. And with this overwhelming support, Henry was actually able to take over make Richard sign his own abdication, and then was crowned Henry IV. Richard was now deposed, imprisoned in the tower where he would later die mysteriously, as they all do. And with the death of Richard, the crowning of Henry, the English kings now passed from the Plantagenet lines to the Lancastrians. Now, Henry had his coronation on October 13th of 19. 1999. 1399. That was a while ago. <laughs> and his address to the people afterwards was actually very quite notable. It was the first time since before 1066 in William the Conqueror that the king gave an address in the native tongue being English. From the time of William the Conqueror, everything was in French. And in fact, anytime the king had political business, it was all conducted in French, not in English. Another strange event happened as well the day before the coronation. Ken, Henry actually created the Knights of Bath later to become the Order of Bath. And it was called Bath, you would think because of the city of Bath, but no, it was actually because Henry was known to actually bathe every week, which was something almost nobody ever did at the time. If they bathed, it was maybe twice a year. If that, most people did not think bathing was good for your health. In fact, doctors even said so. Now, the 46 knights who became part of the order all had to participate in a blessed purification bath 
before they could actually be admitted to the order and presume their nightly duties. But you have to take a bath first. Now throughout his reign, which went from 1399 to 1413, Henry IV sought out Parliament's advice for a variety of things, which was an uncommon at the time, but he also, because of his fervent religiousness, he was also against Parliament and a lot of things as well. One very noticeable piece of legislation that Henry passed very early on with the advice of Archbishop Arundel was the De Heretico Converendo, which makes Henry IV the first ruler of England to lawfully allow the burning of heretics, which is certainly of note. Now, because he was seen as an usurper, which he was, Henry fought many, many rebellions and assassination attempts against him, especially in the first few years. And one of the most notable was against the Welsh in 1400 with their rebellion leader, Owen Glendorn, which we will absolutely do an episode because I'm really excited about that. And he had actually been crowned Prince of Wales by the Welsh people. The Percys, which were companions to the Lancasters, have now deferred to the Welsh side and fought with Glendor, as well as the French and even Edward Mortimer which was Richard's second heir apparent was fighting to gain back the crown. Now, unfortunately, the rebellions were unsuccessful, mostly because the campaigns were led by Henry IV's eldest son, Henry, the future Henry V, and he was incredibly good at military strategy. Now, the Welsh rebellion would come to an end in 1408 when all the key players had been captured, killed, or fled. And by fled, I mean Glyndwr fled to the Welsh mountains and was never seen again. Other notable events in Henry's reign was, and I think we may need to do something on this because I don't know where this ever happened, a visit, the only visit in, to England by the Byzantine emperor, Manuel II Paleologos in the winter of 1400 to 1401. And also there was the capture of Scotland's future King James I, which was taken care of by English pirates and James was brought to the Tower of London. Manuel was the only Byzantine emperor, as we mentioned, to ever visit England. And Henry made a very big show of it with many feasts and jousting tournaments. He even sent a great deal of money back with the Byzantine emperor in order to help him fight his campaigns against the Ottoman. Now, when King James, the future King James, was captured by the pirates, Henry had him imprisoned, and James would remain a political prisoner under Henry until his death 18 years later. Well, until Henry's death, let's specify. Now, in 1381, Henry married his first wife, Mary of Bone. And with her, he had Henry V, as well as six other children. Again, four sons and three daughters. Now, unfortunately, Mary died in childbirth in 1394. Now, after some years, Henry, now king, because it's in, in the, into the 1400s, married a very prominent noblewoman, Joan of Navarre in 1403. Now his marriage to Joan is not only unique for the time, but it also became an event during her life at, while she was queen that became a precedent for a handful of other future queens, which I'll get into as well. Now for Joan, so at age 16, she was married off to John, the fourth, the Duke of Brittany in France in 1386 as his third wife. Now this marriage with to John only lasted four years, but produced four heirs. So she was very consistently pregnant. Now during the late 1390s, while he was in exile, Henry met with Duke John to talk about gaining assistance in his campaign against Richard III to claim back his family lands. And while he was here is where he met John. And it's said that he became immediately and incredibly smitten with her beauty, her wit, and her intelligence. And when they got married, it lasted for 10 years. Now, unfortunately, it remained childless between the two of them, aside from both the children they bought from both sides to their marriage. Now, the most memorable event that happened in Joan's life, which will also play in some of this later stuff, um, slight tidbit though, is after the death of Richard IV, or sorry, after the death of Henry IV during the reign of Henry V, she was imprisoned and charged with witchcraft against Henry IV by Henry V. 
And this was actually the first, but not the last time that an English queen would be charged with witchcraft. And in this case, however, unlike some of the other ones, Henry V really just wanted to take her lands and her money to help pay for his ongoing wars against France during this time. Eventually on his deathbed, he would give Joan back all of her lands and titles in order to let her live comfortably as Dowager Queen, which she did until she died at the age of 67. Now, during the last 10 years of Henry IV's life, he was plagued with a lot of medical illnesses. According to records, he had some sort of skin disease, which sort of left him disfigured. It isn't clear by the records of the time what this was, but speculation by today's professionals believe it could have been anything from leprosy to psoriasis to syphilis. We're not sure because it doesn't specify what kind of disfiguration or anything like that or what the conditions were. In addition, Henry also had recurring bouts of some sort of debilitating illness. This happened in June of 1405, April of 1408, the winter between 1408 and 1409, December of 1412, and then finally in March of 1415 when he died. Medical professionals think that this could have been anything from bouts of epilepsy to strokes to cardiovascular diseases or a combination of. He just sort of unexpectedly died. Now there's a story that Henry was told that when he died, he would die in Jerusalem. So to Henry, this meant that when he would die, he would die fighting in crusades. However, in March of 1413, he happened to die in the Jerusalem chamber in the home of the abbot of Westminster. Although we know that almost all English rulers have been buried in Westminster since its construction, Henry was one of the exceptions. He actually had himself buried in Canterbury Cathedral as close to the shrine as Thomas Becket as possible. During the reign of Richard II and Henry IV, there was a fervent cult around Thomas Becket at by this point, who was killed by Henry II. And it's said that Henry was even potentially coronated with oil that had been passed down by his family, given to him by his father, that had been given to Becket by the Virgin Mary herself. Now, Henry IV is the only English king to be buried in Canterbury Cathedral. And when he died, he was survived by his children, Henry, Thomas, John, Humphrey, Blanche, and Philippa. So I'm gonna briefly talk about his sons because they'll play a role later on, especially the first one, Henry. So this would be the upcoming Henry V. And he was born in August of 1386 in Monmouth Castle, which is on the border of Wales. And after his father ascend is ascended to being Henry IV, Henry became the lawful Prince of Wales and then would spend 1400 to 1408 fighting against Owen Glyndwr and the Welsh Rebellion. And during the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403, the battle against the Percys, Henry V actually took an arrow to his face, which is actually really, in most instances, that would probably kill you. Uh, I think if I recall correctly, watched the documentary on this some time ago, it launched, I think, in his upper mandible and it needed to be removed or else it, it was going to cause a massive infection. Now, given the time, they didn't have a whole lot of surgical equipment or know-how to remove something that was embedded in bone. So, and an incredible medical surgery at the time, a very specific type of instrument was created for this specific purpose and was successful in not only being able to pull out the arrowhead that lodged in his jaw, but he didn't die of infectious diseases. He didn't die of gangrene or anything like that. It left him with a scar on his face, but that was pretty legit, which was incredible for the time, especially, especially given germs and, and, and dirt and diseases and everything. Now, after Henry IV died in 1413, Henry, of course, then became Henry V at the age of 26. Now, the most famous event in his very short reign was his very successful battle, uh, uh, his very successful victory at the Battle of Agincourt, which happened in October of 1415. He originally had apparently planned to attack Paris, but when a third of his entire army died of dysentery bleh, during the successful siege of Harfleur, uh, he changed his mind. Now, on October 25th, 1415, Henry's sixth 
5,000 man army went to battle against the 30,000 French. And somehow he won. And now because the terrain of the area of Agincourt, the French had to fight hand-to-hand in very close formations, which made them easy targets for Henry's archers. The land they were fighting on was also apparently quite muddy at the time, causing the French to have a very difficult time maneuvering and getting a foothold, literally. And at one point in the battle, Henry's soldiers had apparently even captured so many French prisoners that there were so many on their side. He actually thought that maybe they might gang up together and turn on them, putting the English literally in the middle of two sides of the French army. So instead of going with the rules of war at the time, Henry decided to have all of the prisoners executed, which was kind of a first for the time. So all in all, the French ended up losing around 7,000, while the English only lost just a handful of hundred men at the Battle of Agincourt. Now, despite his incredible victory, Henry would continue over the years to fight the French. And in 1420, Charles VI of France signed the Treaty of Troy, which gave England power over France until Charles passed away. As part of the treaty, Henry married Charles' daughter, Catherine, in 1420. And very, very soon after the marriage, Catherine was pregnant and would give birth to the future King Henry VI. And before Henry VI was even a year old, his father unfortunately died of dysentery himself. Now, Henry had a younger brother, Thomas, which was also given the title of the Duke of Clarence. Now, before I continue, there's several books that I've read over the years where they're talking about the Duke of Clarence, the Duke of Bedford, the Duke of Gloucester. But they're talking about different people as well. And I'm not going to refer to them as that. I'm probably going to refer to them as Thomas of Lancaster, John of Lancaster, Humphrey of Lancaster, or of York. Because talking about the Duke of Clarence in one, like in the, the late 1300s or the early 1400s, and talking about the Duke of Clarence later on in the 1460s, I get confused as to who they're referring to because I don't know that much about the smaller barons and the dukes. So I'm just going to refer to them as their first name and the family line, not whether Duke of, because they could also be Dukes of other things as well, which we'll uh, talk about in a second. So Thomas of Lancaster was born at Kenilworth Castle in 1387, and he was actually knighted by his father, Henry IV, on October 12, 1399, when he created the Knights of Bath. Militarily, he served as a lieutenant of Ireland from 1401 to 1413 and was in command of an English fleet during 1405. He married a woman named Margaret Holland, the widow of John Beaufort. Remember the name of the Beauforts, they'll come into play later. And through both of their family trees, it turned out Thomas and Margaret were first cousins. But I guess this was okay at the time. Their marriage, unfortunately, had no children, but Thomas did become stepfather to her six children from her previous marriage. Now, he was created Duke of Clarence also by his father on July 9th, 1412. Now, after Henry V became king, Thomas fought with his brother at France at Harfleur. However, he was injured here and sent home before the Battle of Agincourt. And while back in England, he ruled as regent while Henry V was continuing to fight. He would later return to France and fight at the Siege of Rouen. And when Henry went back to England with Catherine in 1420, he left Thomas in France as his lieutenant to continue fighting. Unfortunately, on March 21st, his army of around 3,000 were ambushed in France by the French and Scots at the Battle of Belger. And it was during this time that Thomas was unfortunately killed by uh, Scottish troops. Now, the next brother in line would be John of Lancaster, the Duke of Bedford, and he was born on June 20th, 1389. Like his brother Thomas, he was also knighted in October of 1399 by Henry IV, and he also received lands from the Percys after their defeat at the put down of the Welsh Rebellion. After the ascension of Henry V, Henry made John also the Earl of Kendall, the Earl of Richmond, and the Duke of Bedford in 1414. Between 1415 and 1422, John served as lieutenant of the kingdom while Henry and Thomas were off in France. Now, after the death of Henry V and Thomas, John and his younger brother Humphrey both quarreled as to who would reign in the stead 
uh, of Henry VI, who was still a baby at this point. And according to Henry V's will, John was declared regent. However, while he would be in France fighting, Humphrey would then act as Lord Protector over the infant Henry. John would eventually marry the daughter of John the Fearless of France, his daughter Anne, in 1423. This marriage also was childless, but it seemed to be a rather happy one. Now, unfortunately, Anne died in Paris with the plague in 1432. And not too long after, John married another incredibly important woman during this time named Jaquetta of Luxembourg. She will play a major role later on. I believe she'll be coming up in the next episode, more specifically. Now, John was not just a skillful general, he was also a very good administrator, as I mentioned, and he was able for a time to actually keep his father's gains in France. Now, in 1426, he had to return to England in order to come, with some, come to terms and reconcile with his younger brother, Humphrey. The following year, he returned to fighting in France, but this time it would be a little different because it's 1430, or, or it's the late 1420 is up to 1430, and that means if you've got Joan of Arc. So they started losing land in, in, in France, and France started gaining the lands back that the English took. And at one point in 1430, Joan was captured, and John specifically was there to have her tried and burnt at the stake. Afterwards, he then went to Paris to partake in the coronation of Henry VI. Now, John died in 1435 at his castle in Rouen, and he was buried in Rouen Cathedral. Now, the last one on this list is the youngest brother and the youngest son of Henry IV, Humphrey Bone, Duke of Gloucester. Frankly, I really like this guy. I think he would have made an amazing king. He was born on October 3rd of 1390 and was the last son of Henry IV and Mary of Bone. And he was actually named for his maternal grandfather, Humphrey de Bone, one of the several earls of Hereford. And Humphrey would fight with Henry V in France as well as their brother Thomas and John. And he was considered to be a very skillful and successful military commander. And it's said that during the Battle of Agincourt, Henry V and Humphrey were fighting side by side when at one point Humphrey got wounded and Henry V, king at this point, was now shielding his brother from French troops. One of the most important events happened in Humphrey's life, or one of the most important events in Humphrey's life happened in 1422 when Henry V died. Now Humphrey was named Lord Protectorate over the future King Henry VI until he was old enough to rule, which is, as you mentioned, 12 or 13. Now after the death of all of his brothers, Humphrey also became regent. And the following year, 1423, Humphrey married a woman named Jacqueline, the Countess of Hanau and Holland. And this, by many accounts, was deemed to be a very rashful marriage. And Jacqueline was not only his cousin, but had also been previously married and divorced, which was a big thing for back then. Now, because this marriage gave Humphrey a lot of lands in Holland, Zealand, and Hanau, he was like, great, I got lots of land, but it, it didn't last very long. The Duke of Burgundy, who was trying to win back some of the lands in France and the title to rule, joined with her ex-husband, John IV of Hanau, and eventually Jacqueline would surrender to the men, and they imprisoned her, and her marriage to Humphrey was annulled in 1428. Now, despite this marriage, Humphrey was incredibly popular with the people who actually called him Good Duke Humphrey. He was a patron of the arts, patron of literature, was a benefactor for the University of Oxford. He was also incredibly popular because he, he was actually able to keep England at peace, even with the Welsh, which earned him the title of Chief Justice of South Wales. So I see this guy would have made a really, really great king. And aside from his two marriages, Humphrey was considered to be amazing. The second one, though, kind of really breaks the heart. So it's his second wife caused an even bigger stir than the first one, and this would be Eleanor Cobham. She was a lady-in-waiting to Jacqueline, when, and, and she and Humphrey would have had several opportunities to meet during their marriage. After the annulment to Jacqueline, Humphrey returned to England. Eleanor returned with him as his mistress, 
And as soon as the annulment was secure, Humphrey and Eleanor went. Humphrey and Eleanor were incredibly very much in love with each other and hosted very many parties catered to the arts at their court in La Plaisance and Greenwich. However, it was, it was a, a common and known practice at the time. But at one point, Eleanor consulted astrologers to tell her about her future and upcoming events, which was something lots of people did, at least if you could afford it. Two of her astrologers predicted that Henry VI, who was now king, would suffer a life-threatening illness in 1441. Now, the king's astrologers could find no such information in their charts. Of course not, because it would be considered treason against the king. And on that, they actually charged her two astrologers on treasonable necromancy. Eleanor was mentioned during their testimony. She too was soon arrested and tried. During her trial, she denied all charges except one where she actually admitted that she'd obtained a potion from a woman known as Marjorie Jordomain, which she claimed to use to help her conceive children with Humphrey because they didn't have any children. Now, everyone eventually was found guilty. Her two astrologers were both hung, drawn, and quartered. Marjorie Jordomain was burnt at the stake as a witch. And Eleanor was made to walk barefoot through the streets of London to St. Paul's Cathedral as penance, to where she had to beg for forgiveness and of, it, of her sins. Just imagine, though, Lauren, walking through the entire streets of London at this time, barefoot, just gross. <laughs> just gross. Ugh. In addition to having to pay public penance, she was also ordered to divorce Humphrey and was held under house arrest in 1402 until she died in 1452. And Humphrey, at this time, devastated and disgraced, retired from public and political life. He would also never see his beloved Eleanor ever again. On February 20th of 1447, he was actually arrested on charges of treason also against Henry VI. And on the way to trial, just three days later, he was found dead in his tent at age 56. Now it's believed that he may have been poisoned or maybe even killed on the orders of the Duke of Suffolk who was the extremely close advisor to Henry VI. Humphrey was buried at St. Albans and thus for the time ends the current line of Lancastrians from 1250 to 1450. So just to kind of explain the House of York and House of Lancaster just a little bit to understand where they come from, Obviously the family lines that carried the titles of the House of Lancaster and House of York, as we said, stem from the Plantagenet family or line. The House of Lancaster, just so you know, was created in 1267 by King Henry III. This is long before Edward III, okay? And the first Earl of Lancaster was Edmund, who was the second born son of Henry III. The House of York was actually not created until 1385 when King, under King Richard II, about 120 years after the original founding of the House of Lancaster. So that it, it's, it's a little tidbit of information there just to explain where they began. Again, all family lines stem from the Plantagenet family in this episode. <laughs> So let's talk about what led to the Wars of the Roses as well, or the interests of the Lancastrian side that led to the Wars of the Roses. When the Wars of the Roses began, King Henry IV, Henry of Bolingbroke, as I said, this name is important, Henry of Bolingbroke, the son, the surviving son of John of Gaunt, he, as we said, he had taken the throne from Richard II. And by removing Richard II from the throne, Henry IV created a rival branch within the Plantagenet family that believed they had a better claim to the throne than he did. Let me lay this out for you as a reminder. Edward III had a son, 
Prince Edward, first son, basically known as heir to the throne. Prince Edward had another son, Richard. Prince Edward dies before ever becoming king. Richard becomes king. Edward III had another son, John of Gaunt, who had a son, Henry Bolingbroke. So they're cousins. And Henry's father was the uncle of Richard II. This is just, I know it's complicated, but it's kind of a reminder. So they all stem from Edward III. However, obviously one side, the side that stems from the heir, Prince Edward, believe they have a better right to the throne than the son of John of Gaunt, Henry of Bolingbroke, Henry, aka Henry IV. And that was because they come from the firstborn son. Yes, of course. You know, we're the line from the firstborn son. Therefore, you know, we should be the ones to become king. So by removing his cousin, Richard II, he created a huge family problem. Yay. (laughs) I guess, I guess this leads to who doesn't believe they have a family issue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't give me that look oh i'm just thinking back to richard and john i mean I, oh i mean really come on so henry the fourth family line is actually the one that became known as the lancastrians because henry the fourth or henry Bolingbroke was the duke of lancaster before he became king like i said the house of york was not created until richard the second the cousin of the duke of lancaster also known as King Henry IV later on. So you can see where the family line breaks into the York versus the Lancastrian there. So as we follow the line of Henry IV's lovely family lineage, you have King Henry IV, who has a son who becomes King Henry V, who has a son who becomes King Henry VI. This is where during the reign of King Henry VI is where things really go down. However, just to give a little bit of background, during the reign of Henry VI's father, Henry V had, of course, many military successes during the Hundred Years' War. So all of the land that was lost when Edward, during that second bout of war, when Edward III was alive, it was all regained and more. However, under his son, Henry VI, much more problematic reign and he would end up losing the majority of the territories once again that his father had gained of course the hundred years war is still in progress at the time the war did not end until a final battle known as the battle of castillon in 1453 when this battle ended there was only one territory left under English rule. Do you know which territory that was? I mentioned it under Edwards III's, like he only kept four pieces of land. It's one of those. And I remember I'm thinking it's not Brittany and it's not, I mean, you said Aquitaine. Parts of Aquitaine. I'm thinking it's Burgundy, but I don't think it's Burgundy. Actually, it's Calais. And it's the only territory that is left under English rule during Henry VI's reign because he loses it all. I guess he's not much of a military genius. Well, Henry VI didn't want to fight wars either, much like Richard II. Well, he, he, was always, he was always sick. There's, they say he was potentially mentally deficient. He didn't want to fight. He's yeah. not known for having a great constitution. And when this battle ended and, and Calais became the only territory under English rule, this, this large loss of territory extremely enraged the nobility. And this sent Henry VI into a mental breakdown, supposedly. I wouldn't be surprised. Well, this would be the time he went into a catatonic coma, right? Yes, mental breakdown that led to a catatonic catatonic coma. Basically, he's unable to rule. So, of course, who's ruling in his place? Richard of York. Exactly. 
his cousin. Mm-hmm. Sort of. I guess at this point, it's still cousins. Yeah, they're still cousins, technically. Oh. It's like cousins removed once or twice. I don't know how many times. I'm not going to like do that math right now. But of course, he's in a catatonic stake, stake, state, unable to rule. And Richard, the Duke of York, is ruling in his place. However, this sets up a weakness and a split in factions with the Duke of Gloucester and the Duke of York supporting an aggressive war policy at this time. And another, the other faction, which of course favors peace, which is led by the Duke of Suffolk and the Duke of Somerset, who the Duke of Somerset is supposedly, you know, having an affair with the queen, Margaret of Anjou, who, which means that the queen obviously supports the side that favors peace, so there, there's a split in governmental factions while the king is not available. However, of course, as Melissa just stated, the king comes out of his cataconic state, recovers, retakes the throne, and basically kicks Richard Duke of York out of politics. He says, goodbye. Get lost. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're screwing everything up. Get out. Well, this ends up being a rather large mistake, which actually leads to a battle. The Battle of St. Albans occurs between the two sides. You've got the side with the Duke of Somerset and the Duke of Gloucester, and then you've got the side with Richard and, I'm sorry, the Duke of Suffolk and the Duke of Somerset on one side with the Duke of Gloucester and Richard, the Duke of York on the other. They meet and, um, well, Several Lancastrians die, including the Duke of Somerset. And what does that create? Very angry children seeking vengeance. Yeah. Therefore, the Wars of the Roses has officially begun. Yay! Not really. The Battle of St. Albans, just so you know, is considered a Lancastrian defeat with the Yorkists winning the first battle. And also, just so you know, are you ready for this? Henry VI was captured at this battle. Wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. But then again, he's not very good at his job. I don't think he ever really wanted to rule anything, but he didn't have a choice. It's his divine right. As they no, did. there just wasn't any other heir. I'm pretty sure he may have wanted to abdicate. He was fairly pious. Yeah. I mean, if he could have abdicated, he might have. But again, like we said, Henry V didn't have. Well, I guess he could have potentially given it to Humphrey because by the time he went and got his majority, Humphrey was pretty much the last ruling of his uncles. But the um, rival dukes didn't want that. I mean, I feel like either way a war would have broken out. Yeah. I just, it just would have changed houses. Which house was against which house? I think it still would probably end up being Lancastrian versus York because Henry VI was also Lancastrian. And if he gave, he abdicated and gave the throne to Humphrey, Humphrey was also Lancastrian. And well, York also, still would have fought them. Well, also, which houses supported which houses? I think the differences would have changed for when, if, if he had abdicated which family supported which side, you know? But that's just a personal opinion. But yes, the Battle of St. Albans is considered the first battle of the Wars of the Roses. Welcome to 2022, guys. <laughs> if you're not confused now, you will be. So wait till the next episode. <laughs> so yes, that's everything I have on the lovely Lancastrians. I, I've covered all the key important players on my end. I've got nothing else. No, I, I covered my end too. <laughs> all right. So I guess that's going to end it here for today. That'll, that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history. And also, just a reminder... We have our Facebook and Instagram pages, History Explains It All underscore podcast. 
That's where we post at least twice a week, either today in history or in archaeology in the news. And we also post all of our episode notes and stuff like that for you. And if you want to contact us, you can do that through our email at historyexplainsall at gmail.com. Please, you, you won't have an idea or a topic or anything like that. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rate and review if you can. We'd really appreciate it. It's how people find us. On Apple. On Apple Podcasts, right. Or iTunes or whatever it's called nowadays. It's Apple Podcasts. Yeah, technology. It's changing every day. <sighs> yeah. Well, I guess with that all said and everything out of the way, we will see everyone next week for some weird history and we will hopefully see you for the second episode of this series. As we trek through history too. Explain <laughs> it all. Bye. Bye.